So who's this guy Rouhani anyway? Today, Monday, June 17th, this is The World. Hi, Marco Werman. Iran's newly elected president, Hassan Rouhani, has a reputation as pragmatic and diplomatic. That's a change from his predecessor. This Iran watcher found Rouhani's first press conference today refreshing. Unlike Mr. Ahmadinejad, when he was asked a question, he didn't get back to you with another question. In fact, he did have an answer, and most of the time it made sense. We'll also hear a voter's take on Rouhani's victory and what it might mean for the West. And later, juicing the baseball in Japan and how different the game is there. In the U.S., you go, you drink beer, you eat hot dogs, and you watch the game. But in Japan, the people that go, they're like another participant in the game. Plus, growing cucumbers in the desert. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Iran's new president today held his first press conference since his election victory on Saturday. And refreshingly, it was not filled with ominous messages aimed at the United States. That was the hallmark of outgoing Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Hassan Rouhani was more diplomatic in his statements today. The new government feels that a new opportunity for interacting with the world has been created by the people, by their votes. I think all countries will use this opportunity because in today's world, where there is a lot of tensions, interacting with the Islamic Republic of Iran, engaging with Iran, will serve both Iran and the region and the world. Rana Rahimpur is a reporter for BBC Persian TV in London. She followed Rouhani's election and his press conference today in Tehran. He has been a diplomat for many years and he sounded very diplomatic, very uh, well-spoken. And unlike Mr. Ahmadinejad, when he was asked a question, he didn't get back to you with another question. In fact, he did have an answer and most of the time it made sense. Mm. Give us an example. Well, when he was asked about uh, restoring relations with the U.S., he was very honest. He said it's a complicated situation, but we are hoping to ease the tensions with every country in the world, including the U.S. And if there is goodwill, we are happy to negotiate. I mean, as far as the U.S., he he also said that issues between the U.S. and Iran are complicated, but mentioned that it's an old wound that needs to be healed. Is that an olive branch? I think, yeah, compared to Mr. Ahmadinejad, it might be considered as an olive branch. He said, we better forget about the past and think about the future. He said, as long as the U.S. promises not to interfere in Iranian domestic politics, respect Iranians' rights of nuclear policies and easing the aggressive policies towards Iran, they are happy to negotiate. He was very clear and he said, having relations with the U.S., is in the hands of the supreme leader. No matter what the president thinks, at the end of the day, it's the leader who should decide whether Iran should speak with America or not. Right. So that's kind of a reality check. How about Iranians themselves? I mean, having seen the man really for the first time as president today in this press conference televised, what's been the reaction to this persona that uh, Rouhani presented today? 
The press conference went down very positively, I can say. People were tweeting that it's so good to have someone who sounds more educated than Mr. Ahmadinejad. He sounds very accurate. He didn't get back to you with another question. He wasn't that confusing. So, so far, people seem to be pleased. So, Rana, also today, apparently there was a heckler in the room during the press conference. I'd like our listeners to hear first what happened, then I want to ask you a couple of questions. All right, so uh, I don't know exactly what was said there. Can you tell us first what uh, Mr. Rouhani was saying and then what the heckler said when he interrupted him? The heckler is clearly a supporter of the Iranian opposition because he was chanting that Mr. Rouhani should remember Mir Hossein Mousavi, who's Iran's opposition leader and who's been under house arrest for more than two years. Mr. Mousavi was one of the presidential candidates in 2009, and he said that there were some vote rigging in that election. And since the victory of Mr. Rouhani and when people came on the streets, they have been chanting and asking him to make these people come out of prison. But Mr. Rouhani, earlier in the press conference, made it clear that it's not just his branch of power who makes those decisions. The three branches of power, including judiciary, should come together. But the pressure on him is quite a lot because the opposition supported this man to become the president. So they want him to support the opposition. How much is he willing to do that? It's not clear yet. Right. So it's pretty clear that that uh, heckler didn't think of Rouhani as a reformist. But I'm just wondering today at the press conference, did Rouhani appear to be a moderate interested in reform? Or did you come away with the impression that he was just the least conservative of the conservative candidates who ran for president? At least he tried to present himself as a moderate. He kept saying that people have to unite. And I never get the feeling that he speaks on behalf of the Conservatives, but I never got the feeling that he speaks like a reformist as well. At the moments when he was questioned about whether he's going to remove the ban on opposition parties, he didn't give a clear answer. But if you wanted to read between lines, you could see that he actually would like to give more space to the opposition. But at this stage, he's not sure. And we have to remember, this person is also surprised that he won the election. So he needs more time to sit down and think about his future plans. I mean, a heckler in a room at a press conference can always throw the person speaking off balance. How did Rouhani react in this first very public moment for him? And what do you think we can learn about him from that one uh, moment of tension? He very politely smiled. And I think in general, the way he began his press conference in which he said that he is hoping to have a close relation with journalists in these four years, it seems that he's going to show more tolerance compared to Mr. Ahmadinejad. Rana Rahimpour, reporter with BBC Persian TV. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Later in the program, we'll hear reaction from one Iranian voter who cast her ballot for Rouhani. By the way, here's a curious fact that jumps out about Iran's new president. Hassan Rouhani went to graduate school in Glasgow, Scotland. He earned a degree from Glasgow Polytechnic back in the 1970s. Rouhani must have enjoyed his time there because he returned to receive a Ph.D. in constitutional law. By the way, Glasgow Polytechnic is now Glasgow Caledonian University, and its current chancellor might be familiar, Mohammed Yunus, Nobel Prize winner in 2006 for his work in microfinance. We often think of Earth as a wet and lush planet of blue and green, but the dominant color in much of the world is brown. 
Deserts and dry areas cover vast expanses of the planet and are home to more than 2 billion people. Producing food in these places is already a big challenge, and climate change is likely to make it even bigger. But what if you could grow food using just seawater, CO2, and desert heat? For the latest installment in our What's for Lunch series on food and climate change, reporter John Miller traveled to Qatar on the Persian Gulf to check out an ambitious experiment in greening the desert. You would be forgiven if you were to visit the pilot site of the Sahara Forest Project in an industrial zone south of Doha, and the word bucolic didn't spring to your lips. It looks like an outpost on Mars, an array of trailers and fences and pipes and tanks and mirrors and concrete slabs, all baking on a rectangle of sand. Behind it looms a gigantic fertilizer factory, roaring like a furnace. But if you look closely, you can see life. In fact, you can taste it. That is a perfect little baby cucumber. Yup, a perfect cucumber from an early test crop grown without soil in a greenhouse that could be pretty much anywhere. What's different here is the way that we keep the climate inside the greenhouse comfortable for the plants. For one thing, says Virginia Corliss, the project's research director, the air is enriched with carbon dioxide that's piped in from that fertilizer factory. And the cooling system is different, too. Because we're located in this very extreme desert environment, rather than using air conditioning or something like that that's very energy intensive, we evaporate seawater. As the water evaporates into the air, according to basic physics, the air becomes cooler and more humid, and it's a great place for the plants to grow. Corliss knows a thing or two about physics. She has a degree in it from MIT. For her PhD at Cambridge University in England, she studied dark matter in distant galaxies. Now at age 30, her concerns are more earthly. This pilot facility is the very first experiment in integrating technologies to produce food and fresh water and clean energy in deserts using seawater. If you look at the crises that the world is facing, we need all of those things really badly. The vision for the Sahara Forest Project, Sahara means desert in Arabic, was provided by a pair of Brits, architect Michael Paulin and engineer Bill Watts. They designed facilities that mimic natural ecosystems, where the waste from one component is the food or fuel for another. Joachim Hauga was working as an ecologist in Norway when he heard their idea for greening up the deserts of North Africa and the Middle East. Now he's the project's CEO. We didn't start with the technologies. We started with a thought, and that was, well, let's take what we have enough of, like seawater, like sunlight, like sand, like CO2, to produce what we need more of, food, water, energy, in an environmentally friendly way. This two-and-a-half-acre pilot facility was built to test that idea under real-world conditions. It's here because Qatar has sunlight, seawater, sand, and CO2, and lots of money. The seawater, pumped from the nearby Persian Gulf, is the system's lifeblood. Some of it's used to cool and humidify the greenhouses. Some of it's used to grow algae to produce biofuel, with the leftovers going to make animal feed. Some of it's transformed into fresh water by a solar-powered desalination unit, and some of it may be used to raise fish or shrimp. They're still working on that. The core innovation is the integration of technologies. While many of the individual technologies have been developed elsewhere in the world, they've never been brought together in this way. And integration is not easy, but the benefits to the added complexity, we think, are well worth the extra effort. 
The main benefit, at least in theory, is efficiency. As in nature, almost everything's recycled. And once you've built it, the energy to run it comes from the sun. In fact, Corliss expects that a full-sized facility would consume more CO2 than it produces. This is our desert nursery. She takes me to see her favorite experiment. It's low-tech, but it's one of the most important for tipping the carbon balance. Here we're testing out a lot of native desert species to see which have potential to be cultivated agriculturally. The area looks sort of like a beach volleyball court, except with open-cell cardboard walls that are dripping with seawater. It's the same principle as the greenhouse, only the water's evaporated by the wind instead of a fan. The hope is that the cooler, moister air will help grasses and shrubs and trees take root and eventually spread on their own into the desert. Hence the name, the Sahara Forest Project. Any uh, surprises so far? Really just how spectacularly well they've grown. Of course, the bigger question is whether the whole system will take root and grow. We'd be very happy if we saw this concept being applied not just by ourselves but all over the world. If this really opens up a whole set of regions in the world, desert areas, to a new kind of agriculture and energy generation in a way that can really have a global impact. But it's a long way from here to there. To be financially viable, a facility needs to be big. That takes serious money. Not a problem here in Qatar, but plans to build a site in Jordan have moved much more slowly. And then there's the business model. Designing and building complex facilities in harsh environments, then recouping the cost by selling vegetables, electricity, fuel, animal feed, water, salt, maybe fish, maybe fruit, maybe fodder. It's a lot to get right and a lot to go wrong. Nature is a terrific model. It's also the product of eons of trial and error. For The World, I'm John Miller, Cutter. Dry regions aren't the only places where it can be tough to grow food sustainably. So show us your green gardening challenges and methods. One Instagram user showed us tomatoes she grew using drip irrigation. Tag your photo on Instagram with our hashtag What's for Lunch. That's What's the number four lunch. What's for Lunch. Our series is part of Food for Nine Billion, a two-year project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting with broadcast partners PRI's The World, PBS NewsHour, and American Public Media's Marketplace. You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, think David versus Goliath. We're looking for underdogs in the world of sports, specifically from a small island in the South Pacific. It seems almost unfair for this island, but its national soccer team is facing some of the world's best at a major tournament in Brazil this week, and doing so with a roster that includes just one professional player. Okay, I did not tell you that this island in French Polynesia has fewer than 200,000 residents, so no wonder only one pro. Today for its debut at the FIFA Confederations Cup, the island's team took to the field against African soccer champs Nigeria. Later, the islanders faced an improbable showdown against world champs Spain. So where in the Pacific is this Cinderella team from? We'll be back in overtime for the answer. 
Now, for sports fans in Japan, this should sound familiar. There's been a record number of home runs in Japanese baseball this season, 60% more homers than this time last year, in fact. So many that Japanese players started to wonder, is there something different with the ball? Well, it turns out there is. Eleanor Warnock's following the story in Tokyo for the Wall Street Journal. The season started at the end of March, and by May, players were already setting season records for their home runs. So one player in particular, Tony Blanco, he hit 14 home runs in April, which is the most home runs in any month for anyone in professional baseball. And so people thought, okay, there has to be something up. So how did this news leak out? For the past couple of years, Japanese players have been using a new standardized ball, which didn't let them hit as many home runs as they used to hit. It was a little bit deader than the many different balls they used in the past. So this year, when players started hitting all these home runs, they thought something was up. And the players' union actually finally approached the NPB, Nippon Professional Baseball, which is the commissioner for professional baseball in Japan, and said, okay, something has to be wrong. What is it? And the NPB confessed that they had juiced the balls. This uh, juicing of the ball, if you will. I mean, is this basically endorsed by Nippon Professional Baseball, NPB? Yes, it was. They had a contract with Mizuno Corp, makes the balls. And inside the contract, it was stipulated that Mizuno should make a certain kind of ball that wasn't too dead. They had to make sure that the ball fulfilled certain specifications. And NPB tests the balls that Mizuno makes three or four times a year. And so when they found that some of the balls that Mizuno was making were under that specification, so were deader than they were supposed to be, they said, can you give these balls a little more oomph? Actually, juicing a ball, how do you do that? Because I know one way involves something from physics called the coefficient of restitution, but that's just a fancy name for bounciness, right? Right. The very center of the ball is cork, and surrounding that cork center is rubber. And just by changing that rubber a little bit, you can completely change that bounciness of the ball. So Mizuno changed the composition of the rubber that was surrounding the core of the ball. And just by doing that, they completely changed how the ball hit. And completely changed the game. What's been the reaction? I talked to a representative from Mizuno and I talked to representatives from NPB and they've said they've gotten many, many calls from fans that are really, really angry about this. Mm. It's not really so much about the home run thing, because of course fans are happy to see home runs, but more that they weren't in the know. Uh, They kind of felt cheated in a different way. And, you know, fans are really protective of the players, too. So they they felt bad for the players who were playing with no knowledge that anything had changed. You know, we were speaking with the writer Pico Iyer, and he was talking about the book You Gotta Have Wa, which is all about Japanese baseball. And Pico Iyer said that to really know Japan is to go to a Japanese baseball game. Give us a sense of just how important this game is in Japan. In the U.S., you go, you drink beer, you eat hot dogs, and you watch the game. But in Japan, the people that go, they're like another participant in the game. (laughs) And so they wear these hoppy coats, so these special coats with, like, the team names on it. They've got, like, things wrapped around their heads. They've got huge flags that they wear. They have specific cheers that everyone knows. So it's very serious. When was the last time you went to a a ball game in Tokyo, Eleanor? (laughs) The last time I went to a ball game was actually not in Tokyo. I studied in Nagoya, and Nagoya's team is called the Dragons. And so I went to a Dragons game. Anything happen in the seventh inning stretch? Can you share a cheer with us? 
<laughs> I don't know any specific cheers, but I can say one thing. I was staying with a host family, and my host dad loved the baseball. And then when the game was over, there was a congratulations, Dragons, you won sale at all the department stores <laughs> in the city. And so my host mom was really happy about that. So baseball pleases both sides. <laughs> she got a few discounts that day, did she? Exactly. And even when the uh, team wouldn't win, the department stores would have a sale for thank you for cheering us on. Wow. So even really, then it was okay. <laughs> that really does speak volumes. Eleanor Warnock, a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, telling us about juiced baseballs in Japan. Thanks so much. Thank you. Back to soccer now and the answer to our geo quiz. We were looking for a team of underdogs from a South Pacific island. These underdogs are competing with the big dogs at the FIFA Confederations Cup. Well, the answer is a French Polynesian island nation of Tahiti. The Tahitians qualified for the Confederations Cup by winning last year's Oceania soccer tournament. Their reward? A week in Brazil to play against some of the best in the world. All the other teams are filled with 100% professionals. Tahiti's roster has, count them, just one pro. Of the other 22 players, nine are unemployed. The rest have day jobs as delivery boys, truck drivers, PE teachers, and accountants. Journalist Moya Perron with Tahiti's TNTV says the players may seem like total outsiders, but they've got lots of fans in Brazil. There's only one professional footballer in the team. They are normal people. They are not used to to see all those uh, security around them, all those people shouting, Tahiti, we love you, or... And they have um, very good support from uh, the Brazilian. Everywhere they go, people are shouting, oh, Tahiti, we love you. And they're showing their support. Uh, Tahiti's going to need more than crowd support and love, though. Its opponents include powerhouses Nigeria and Uruguay, not to mention the reigning World Cup champion, Spain. A tall order for a team that's currently ranked 138th in the world, just ahead of Afghanistan. The Tahitian is a very small team. We've never been in a professional competition like that one, and maybe difficult for them. And um, the beach soccer team is really good. But sports is filled with Cinderella stories, so maybe Tahiti can make history this week. As Tahiti's coach said of his team, we will fight like lions and we will do anything to represent our country. Go get them, Tahiti. Before we take a break, a quick note on a story that we've returned to several times, women in combat. The Associated Press says it's obtained information relating to some new Pentagon plans. According to those plans, women will start training as U.S. Army Rangers within two years and as Navy commandos a year after that. Including women in these all-male special operation forces would mark a major change in policy. The AP says that Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel ordered the changes. Here's another change, this one from Norway. The Norwegian military has mandatory conscription, which sets it apart from most European nations. And Norway's parliament has voted to extend conscription to all its citizens, regardless of gender. The measure is likely to become law. There's little opposition. So women there are likely to face a draft by 2015. You're listening to The World. News headlines are next here on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how a conversation at the Pyongyang International Film Festival led to a hard-won project inside the Hermit Kingdom. We were talking to one of the actresses. She said, you guys make documentaries. What kind of documentary would you like to make next? And just by way of small talk, we just said, oh, what about documentary about your film industry? 
PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Iran's new president, Hassan Rouhani, is a cleric who's worked for decades within Iran's conservative establishment. But he was also the least conservative of the six candidates on the ballot last week. And he has a reputation for being pragmatic. That's given hope to those who hope for a change in Iran. Last week, ahead of the election, we spoke with one Iranian voter who wanted a change, a teacher in her 40s from a town near Tehran. She told us that the future would be bleak if one of the more conservative candidates won. We were curious to hear how she feels now after Hassan Rouhani's surprise win. So we called her up today, as before, she asked that we not use her name. On Saturday night, oh my God, you should have been here. I hadn't seen that much happiness for a long time, people were uh, on the street, they shouted, we took our voted back. You know, they meant about last presidential election. They talked about future. We were so happy. And uh, most of the people now can think about their future. And I think hope and happiness back to our life. It's odd because before the election, Rouhani did not impress a lot of people who wanted reform. Can you tell us why you were so elated by uh, Rouhani's victory? Rouhani was the only option that we have because uh, Rafsanjani and Khatami uh, supported him. Now we hope that maybe he can do a lot in future. We do not expect a great change. We want change gradually. We've been through a lot during these years and we do not expect a great change. I think that this election has two winners, Hashemi and people. And the big loser is Supreme Leader because he couldn't do the same thing that he had done before in 2009 election because he was aware of people's reaction. When you say Hashemi, you're referring to Akbar Hashemi Rasanjani. Yeah, Hashemi Rafsanjani, yeah. Because, you know, he wasn't popular at all before. And now people loved him. Again, he's a hero because he didn't support Supreme Leader that he had done it before. And now he is with people. I find it fascinating that you seem to see uh, Rouhani's victory as almost a victory for Rafsanjani. Of course, be sure that if Hashemi didn't support Rouhani, Rouhani wouldn't be the next president. Be sure that. You told us last week that the future would be bleak for women in Iran if a hardcore religious candidate was elected. Tell us how you feel today. Yeah. That day, I was so afraid. Because, for example, Jalili, he told in a presidential debate on TV, women should be at home 
raise their children. Come on, Iran. Here is not Afghanistan. Most of the women in Iran are educated. They work outside of the house. If they force us to be at home, oh my God, we will die. And now I'm so optimistic about my future. I'm so optimistic. What did you and your friends and family do to celebrate when you heard that Rouhani had won? I was at work. Then uh, I came out from the Institute. I saw many cars, you know. They shouted. We took our uh, voted back. I I was so tired, but I I couldn't go home. I stood there and watched people. They uh, clapped. They shouted. They danced. Can you imagine that in Islamic Republic of Iran? Okay, people dance at home in gathering the parties at home, you know? That was very, very, very beautiful. People celebrated till, I think, 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. So you didn't know going into this election whether your vote mattered or not. Do you think your vote mattered now? You know, I cannot trust supreme leader. You know, I cannot trust him. Okay, my vote in this election matter. Yeah? I think people in Iran, we are optimistic now. We are not disappointed that much, but uh, still we cannot trust the government. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts on, on this election. You're welcome. Hassan Rouhani's moderate tone contrasts strikingly with the rhetoric of his predecessor, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad most famously talked of wiping Israel off the map. We're going to speak now with Michael Singh, a former senior director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council, specializing in Iran. He says Ahmadinejad wasn't that unusual. I think Ahmadinejad was, in a sense, the most extreme example of it. But he was really just channeling the rhetoric of the supreme leader, of senior Iranian clerics, of IRGC, Revolutionary Guard officials. And so the things Ahmadinejad was saying perhaps sounded more extreme uh, to a sort of Western listener, but in many ways they really just reflected the standard rhetoric of Iranian officials. So how does Rouhani compare, at least in terms of rhetorical style? And do you think he's just going to be parroting in a moderate tone what the clerics say? Well, I think there's no doubt that Rouhani's rhetoric, his language, will be different. And the question is, how much more will be different? Uh, You know, we do know something about Rouhani because we dealt with him uh, as Iran's nuclear negotiator, uh, as the head of Iran's Security Council. Uh, And so we know that he is a regime insider. Uh, He has been deeply invested in Iran's nuclear program. He's been supportive of the regime's policies, even towards uh, its domestic repression, for example. At the same time, he is known as a pragmatist, as a diplomat, uh, someone who wants to achieve Iran's aims Uh, even though they may be the same aims the Supreme Leader and the conservatives have, achieve them through diplomacy uh, rather than, say, through confrontation. And so we'll have to see. How does this difference of personality, difference in approach, translate to any difference, if if at all, in Iranian policy? And as uh, Iran's former nuclear negotiator, as a diplomat, as a dialogue seeker, do you think that implies any greater maneuverability for the Obama White House going forward? Well, the first question will be, what authority does Rouhani have? Typically, the president of Iran has not had a lot of authority over issues like the nuclear program or like Iran's activities in the region in places like Syria, much less Iran's support for terrorism and its more shadowy activities. Uh, And so we'll have to see, will that be the case with Rouhani? And I think we'll see some of that fairly quickly. 
So, for example, Will Saeed Jalili, uh, who was his rival in the presidential campaign uh, and is Iran's current nuclear negotiator, will he be replaced? Will he be removed from his position? If not, I think it's a clear sign that uh, Rouhani's authority will be circumscribed. Um, But look, if Rouhani really is given authority, well, then I think the Obama administration and its allies uh, and our allies, I should say, in Europe and and elsewhere – We'll see this as a potential opening to be probed. Uh, The question is, how do you look for that opening? How do you probe that opening without being tricked, essentially, into softening our nuclear negotiating position, into softening uh, the pressure on Iran and giving the regime time to regroup? Michael, we're at that moment where we could be feeling, you know, we don't have Mahmoud to kick around anymore. I'm thinking of some of his more over-the-top comments. I mentioned wiping Israel off the map earlier. He also declared that there were no homosexuals in Iran. Uh, He also denied the Holocaust. Honestly, are you going to miss Ahmadinejad a little bit? Well, look, Ahmadinejad was uh, diplomatically useful sometimes because his statements were so reprehensible that they helped unite countries against Iran. They, They helped make clear what the Iranian regime was really about. Uh, And to the extent Rouhani is sort of a more smiling face, uh, I think there's a danger that we need to guard against that he could really start to split some of this coalition that President Obama has built up and that President Bush built up before him. You know, at the same time, though, I think, look, you know, our main objective here in the United States uh, is not simply to bring pressure against Iran, it's to resolve this nuclear issue. And so that's what we need to keep our, our eyes focused on, is resolving the nuclear issue and not paying too much attention to kind of the personalities and the rhetoric, but pay attention to the policies underneath. And that's, I think, what U.S. officials will be looking at. Michael Singh, Managing Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thanks for your thoughts. Thank you. Now, the axis of evil thing is over, but it's safe to say that the late North Korean leader Kim Jong-il was a film fanatic. His favorite actress, he once said, was Elizabeth Taylor. His favorite actor, Sean Connery. And when he died, it's rumored that he left behind one of the largest film collections in the world. He also left behind a thriving movie industry. Singaporean director Lin Lee was able to briefly get behind the scenes at the elite Pyongyang Film School, where she says it's almost as if the late Kim Jong-il were still directing. In the film school, all the film books were written by him. The students would learn his theory on what filmmaking should be. He would personally supervise films that he took an interest in. And all the students we spoke with, he was their star. He was the great director. So, I mean, it's one thing to be a North Korean filmmaker in North Korea. Obviously, it's an entirely different proposition going there as a foreign filmmaker. I mean, what did you have to do to get inside North Korea and make movies? How it happened was that we were invited to the Pyongyang International Film Festival. They have Um, an international film festival. They do. Wow. When we were there, they had atonement showing and banded like Beckham and Italian films. People would queue up to get tickets. So we were there and we learned during our time there that there was a big film industry. We visited the film studios. We met actors, actresses, directors, producers. We were talking to one of the actresses. She said... You guys make documentaries. What kind of documentary would you like to make next? And just by way of small talk, we just said, oh, what about documentary about your film industry? And that conversation lasted about eight months. And finally, they said, okay, you can come. Of course, there were some conditions involved, like we had to have guides with us all the time. Right. That seems pretty normal for North Korea. And also, we had to agree to have our footage delivered to the censors at the end of each day. You were okay with that? Obviously, as filmmakers, we, we didn't like having our, our stuff censored. But mm. then we also thought 
if this tiny window is opening up to us, just try it out and see what happens. Now, you go to the soundstage in North Korea where it's like the back lot in Hollywood, except it's not. It kind of blew my mind. Can I just tell you? It was just I had no idea this existed inside North Korea. Yeah, it blew our mind, too. And we were on set with director Pyok. We had no idea that something like that existed as well. And This is filmmaker Pyok Hong, who's kind of, uh, what is he, yeah. like the Steven Spielberg of North Korea? Something like that. He's yeah. kind of like the top director. He specializes in making anti-Japanese propaganda films. I wanted to ask you about one scene in which the director Pyo is working with, uh, I guess, extras. There are so many of them, soldiers, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in one scene. And he's asking for them to really kind of display this anger about the Japanese. And he's not getting it from them. And he's really getting frustrated. I can only imagine if this were real life, that soldiers kind of giggling at something, they'd get sent to a labor camp. So does any of that real-life authoritarianism ever bleed into film production in North Korea? Those soldiers, well, they're actually, they're real soldiers. They're not, I was wondering you know, about that, yeah. Yeah, they were told to be extras on set, but they're actually soldiers. And we found it quite interesting that they were unable to give director Pio what he wanted. I think there's a generational thing as well. Pio grew up in a time when memories of the Japanese occupation were still very fresh, whereas this new generation, they, they've never seen that. And so they were not able to identify or connect uh, with Pio when he said to them, you know, I want you to show more anger or yeah. to show more hatred in your eyes. They just couldn't give it to him. Part of the film, you spend profiling one young actress who's studying at the elite North Korean film school. You get inside her home. Her name is Ri Yun Mi. Did your minders have any problems with you getting this access to her, her home and family? And how did you get in? She comes from a very, very, very privileged background. She lives in a really nice apartment. Her father is a scientist. So maybe that was one of the reasons why they were okay with us visiting her as well, because she lives well. It's clear that she comes from privilege, just her breakfast alone, soup, (laughs) eggs, rice, kimchi. And yet when they're shooting in her home, there's a blackout. So not everything is normal. No, even in the elite Pyongyang University, there were, you know, a couple of blackouts as well. So, no, not everything is normal. So what scenes did you capture that you had to leave out? And ultimately, do you feel like you got to tell the story that you wanted to tell? Um, that's a difficult question. If there's a minder, there's always a layer there that you can't get past. And obviously, that's not ideal. But given that we were able to, to do this and do it where no one else has been able to do it, I think... We're quite happy with that. We had problems when we were filming in the museum, for instance. Photographs of uh, the North Korean leaders were not framed properly, and so we were not allowed to use some of the footage. What, so they looked at the kind of rushes and said, no, the great leader needs to be framed so we can see both ears or something like that? Or? You're not allowed to cut him off at his forehead or Ooh. that kind of thing. So I have just one last question for you, Lynn. I I mean, Koreans are so good at snacking and making snack foods. How's the craft service table on North Korean movie shoots? I don't remember seeing one. (laughs) (laughs) They must have little snacks in their bags then. Well, Lynn Lee, great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. One of the characters in Lee's documentary, as you heard, is the young actress Yun Mi. She's what some might call a triple threat. She acts, dances, and even sings. This tune celebrates, you guessed it, the great leader. 
We've also got stills from the film, including a great shot of Yunmi dancing. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. We're going to check in with COSAT today. This year, we're chronicling the lives of students at a high school in Cape Town, South Africa. COSAT is the name of that school. Center of Science and Technology is what it stands for. It serves a poor part of Cape Town, and really, COSAT is a snapshot of South Africa. Here's one unfortunate way COSAT reflects that. Some children lose their parents and suddenly find themselves heading the household. There are thousands of cases like that across South Africa, but each story is unique. Today, the world's Anders Kelto introduces us to a 17-year-old student from COSAT who has found himself in charge at home. On the first day of school, back in January, I asked some students whom I should interview. They led me straight to a boy who was leaning against a brick wall. He was small, but had an air of confidence. My name is Sivinat, S-I-V-E-N-A-T-H-I. But you can call me Sive, he said. Sive was clearly well-respected at school. He had just been selected for a prestigious leadership program and was about to travel to Colorado and Washington, D.C. He was thrilled about the opportunity. I may be a little bit nervous, but actually I'm excited. A few weeks later, I met with Sive again. I was curious to learn more about his family. He said he came from a difficult background. Most of my family is uneducated. My mom's HIV positive. And then, then I don't have a father. His father died six years ago and had never been involved in Sive's life. His mother, he said, suffers from a serious mental illness that makes her unable to work. One older brother isn't around and the other isn't very responsible. So Sive has basically been taking care of his family and their home for years. If I don't take care of my home, Nobody will. He said his upcoming trip to the U.S. would be a great learning opportunity and a welcome respite. Uh, I think the United States trip would be like a vacation to me. After Sive returned from the U.S., I sat down with him at his home, a three-room cement house in a low-income area outside Cape Town. This is my album. He showed me pictures from his trip, the White House, the Lincoln Memorial, even his hotel room. I slept in the big bed big, soft bed and TV, everything. He said he participated in workshops with other young African leaders and met all sorts of Americans, including a group of elderly African-American men. They told us about their childhood, how it's like being a black African-American in America. He said the trip transformed him. He now dreams of being a doctor or ending global warming, maybe even both. And he wants to work with people from different cultures. Sive was clearly riding a high from the trip. But just a few days after he got back, his life took a sudden turn. His mom's health was getting worse. Doctors discovered that she was anemic and had a wide range of other problems. Sive checked his mom into the hospital and visited her regularly. Then, two weeks ago, he got a phone call. His mom had passed away. I think I'm the last person to see my mom, because nobody went and visited my mom in the hospital. I met up with Sive at a place he goes to cope with his stress. 
It's a sandy ridge at the edge of his neighborhood, where garbage is tangled in clumps of wild grass. From a certain spot, he can glimpse the ocean. I always had a dream that I would be the one that take my mom out of this suffering. I always had a dream that I would take my mom to somewhere else. My latest dream is that I wanted to take my mom to the U.S. because I've been there. He says his mother's death has made him even more determined to get a good education and achieve his dreams and to get out of his impoverished community. I want to live a good life. You see, I don't want to live the life that my, my mom lived to suffer. Right now, I just want to pass my exams. His high school is having midterms right now, and he has chosen not to defer them. But at the moment, he can't study. He has to deal with the logistics of life and death. Sive heads to a corner store. He walks along a gravel road, past rows of matching houses and children playing soccer. He says with his mom gone, his 19-year-old brother should become the family head. But Sive says his brother isn't very responsible. So Sive expects to be the one making decisions. I will be more in charge right now if he does not change. At the store, Sive buys a loaf of bread. I ask how he and his brother are going to get by financially. We don't have money. You are so broke. His mother had been getting a disability grant from the government, about $120 a month. Now that money will stop coming in. Money from her life insurance is going toward her funeral. So for now, Sive's only income is a small child welfare grant and some cash he makes working at a bakery on Saturdays. Back at the house, Sive's brother is painting the living room. He says he wants it to look good when people come to pay their respects. Neighbors and friends are stopping by each night this week. Standing on his front step, Sive says all this cleaning and hosting is taking up a lot of his time, and so is another obligation. There are people that don't know yet about my mom, so I have to go there and tell people that my mom passed away. And he'll have to go around the township on foot because none of the people he's contacting use email, and he doesn't have their phone numbers. With so much to do and so much change happening, Sive is incredibly stressed. He doesn't know when he'll have time to prepare for his exams. Back inside, he picks up a brush and helps his brother paint. A few hours later, people begin showing up at his house. More than 40 pack into the tiny living room and spill out onto the road. The singing, the prayers, and a passionate sermon from a pastor will continue for about an hour. A few days later, Sive will travel with his relatives and his mother's body on a 12-hour journey to the family's ancestral land. His mother will be buried there. But on this night, after people pay their respects and head home, once Sive is alone in the house... He will grab his school notebook and check his midterm exam schedule. Then he'll sit down on his saggy metal bed and begin to study. For the world, I'm Anders Kelto in Cape Town. Sive's mother was buried on Saturday. Today, Sive returned to Cape Town. 
He'll be back in school tomorrow. You can see photos of Sive's life, including pictures from his trip to the U.S. at theworld.org slash school year. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.